And what about this uh, at the sixth into the trees? <laughs> but yeah, this is could be Mickey Rooney playing this one, but fantastic <laughs> improvisation from Sevi Ballesteros. Fantastic. Well, if there's a way for a shot to be played, he'll find it. He has the most magnificent imagination. Everyone who knows the man has their own favorite Sevi Ballesteros story. When I think about the most interesting human beings who have ever played the sport at a high level, combination of skill, personality, background, all that stuff, for me, it's Seve and Tiger Woods. Not sure who I'd put third, but they wouldn't be particularly close. So it's no surprise people would have a lot of opinions about Seve, a lot of memories. And by the way, speaking of Tiger, he once called Seve a genius. Tiger is not a guy who gives away compliments freely, but... He spoke about a day when he spent some time with him on a practice screen, watching him chip and pitch and hit these various shots. One of my favorites was at Augusta, him and Ollie, just the two of them. And uh, just to, to hear him explain how to hit shots around Augusta, the way he, where Augusta used to play. Um, it was it was just artful, just the spin and how much spin you need to put here and where you need to land it, where it needs to kick and the feel. That and the way he explained it, and what he needs to do with the body to do this, and the hands he needs to do that, the bounce needs to do this. And I'm like, wow, I didn't know it. I just hit a ball and tried, tried to hold it. To hear Tiger tell it, it was like a master class. And that's coming from someone who is, in my very non controversial opinion, the greatest player of all time. He was in awe watching this older player do his thing. Sevy's name lives on in a big way. If you were around when he was playing, or if you're like me and you really have no memories of him playing, but you've studied him a little, in my case as a byproduct of learning about the history of the Ryder Cup, you can't avoid him. And he's one of these guys where the more you learn about him, the more he becomes three-dimensional in your mind, the more interesting he gets. If you're not an older golf fan and your only encounter with Seve is what you hear of him these days, your perception might be of this guy who's almost a saint-like figure in the lore of Spanish and European golf. We're doing this podcast today because John Rahm just became the fourth Spanish golfer to win the Masters, and Seve Ballesteros was all over that broadcast. It would have been his birthday on Masters Sunday. It was the 40th anniversary of his second win there. It was Easter Sunday, which the first time he won, it was also on Easter. You heard it, if you watched. And then Rahm, when he won, Seve was very much on his mind. You noticed Jose Maria Oathabo greeted Rom on the 18th green after he won. What did they talk about? Seve. In Rom's public speech after winning, he closed with Happy Easter and Rest in Peace, Seve. And he made the sign of the cross. When he went in front of the press, he dedicated the win to Seve, and he said, Can't really say anything else. You know, this one was for Seve. I know he, he was up there helping, and help he did. Now, I want you to notice the heavy religious implication or imagery or whatever you want to call it. That's no mistake. Those of you who remember the 2012 Ryder Cup at Medina where the U.S. took a 10-6 lead heading into Sunday and then Europe had this incredible comeback. I was there that day. Olathabal was the European captain. Seve had passed away just a year before at a relatively young age of 54 from the effects of a malignant brain tumor. And the European team at Medina that week had his name and image all over their bags. He was on the tip of everyone's tongue. On that Sunday, the gambling firm Paddy Power hired a plane to do some skywriting, they wrote "Do it for Seve" in the uh, in the clouds. You could see it up there. And when Europe won, there was this tremendously emotional moment when Ola Thabel 
breaking down in tears, says... Um, I had a few thoughts uh, for my friend Sevi, and uh, this one is for, for him. Okay, I'll give you my... And I think it's worth emphasizing that for a lot of these guys, whether at Medino or if it's Ram at the Masters, this isn't some glib, half-hearted tribute. They really believe that the ghost or the soul of Sevi Ballesteros was present and influencing what happened on the course. You know, if you're keeping score at home, that's at least two events that Sevi had a hand in posthumously after he died. This is the sort of spiritual real estate he occupies. And when you hear the way people talk about him, I don't care how logical you are, how skeptical you think you are, it's hard not to believe them. Ian Poulter probably said it best. He said, Americans had Arnold Palmer and Jack Nicholas, and before that, Ben Hogan and Bobby Jones and others. For us Europeans, Seve is all of those people rolled into one. And again, you get the sense of a man who is not just a guiding light for Spanish and European golf, but a kind of saint. Well, let me be the first to tell you, if you didn't already know, Seve Ballesteros was no saint. And here we get back to my favorite story, and maybe the most illustrative story for me, I think you'll see why I love it so much, and I'm not alone here, it happened at the 1987 Ryder Cup. This was a monumental moment for European golf. Monumental might be understating it. They had not won on American soil ever, period, in the entire history of the Ryder Cup. And at that point, they hadn't won too often at home either. It was an incredibly lopsided history, but things had changed over the last four years. They almost won in America in 83. A man named Tony Jacklin had taken over the captaincy. I always think of him as their George Washington figure. He wasn't just a good leader. He was a great leader. They did win in 85 at the Belfry in England. First time Team Europe had won. And everybody knew 87 this was going to be a war. It was at Jack Nicholas's home course, the Memorial. Nicholas was captain. And believe me, he did not want to be the first American captain to lose at home. He was afraid of it. He knew it was a possibility, and it kept him up at night. And the Seve story I love so much comes from the first day, Friday, afternoon session four ball. And it's also interesting because it's only the second match ever featuring the pair of Ballesteros and Olathabal. One would think that uh, Ballesteros and Olathabal could get down in two from here. Two putts to win the match. The so-called Spanish Armada, which would go on to become, by far, the most successful pairing in Ryder Cup history. They won 11 matches total together. The next highest is five. So that's a pretty definitive stat, wouldn't you say? Their first match was that morning. They beat Larry Nelson and Payne Stewart in alternate shot. Now they were taking on Curtis Strange and Tom Kite in four ball. And Curtis Strange tells this story with an admirable and sort of refreshing amount of honesty and and self-deprecation even in the great book Us Against Them, which is an oral history of the Ryder Cup by Robin McMillan. Highly recommend getting your hands on that one if you like Ryder Cup history. And for some context here, Strange was one of these guys like Paul Azinger who was up for the challenge of playing Seve. And it was a challenge, particularly in match play. Here's how Strange put it in that book. Quote, If there was ever a guy that I really felt that I had to be at my best to beat, it was Seve. I was always so impressed with him. His short game, his ability to play when he wasn't playing well. In match play, 18 holes, you better go because I never could figure out how he was going to make a bogey, end quote. But then he says something that you hear a lot, and it provides a counter-narrative 
to this idea that Sevi is a faultless saint. Here's Strange again. Quote, and he was guilty of gamesmanship. I had a run-in with him almost every time I ever played with him in the Ryder Cup, and I played him a lot. Me being me, I stood up to him. He would always question things, like who was away, when you knew damn well you were away. He'd always come over and question any little drop, and whether you were doing it by the book, there was always an official there, but he'd be right there to question it. Just gamesmanship. End quote. Mentioned Paul Lazinger, who played Sevi often as well, and had an almost unbelievably contentious relationship with him at the Ryder Cups. There was antipathy there that was mutual. He said something similar to me once when I interviewed him at Whistling Straits before the 2021 Ryder Cup. Here's what he said, quote, I revere Sevi. I idolize him like everyone else, but I also know who he was. I know the real Sevi. You had to watch him like a hawk. He wore white shoes and he would early walk your ass. He would clear his throat. And it wasn't just me. You talk to Raymond or Hale or Watson. They'll all tell you that stuff. End quote. So, 87, Olathebel and Sevi against Strange and Kite. They had a rules meeting the day before, and one of the things they covered was not walking on the through line, which meant, okay, if I'm taking a putt and I run it past the hole and I'll have to put it back, that's the through line. Not the line to the hole, but the one after it that you might have to hit a second one over. So, they're on the first hole in this four-ball match. Sevi is 40 feet off the green. Strange had a long look at birdie. Olathebel had a birdie putt. He went first, missed it. And he wanted to putt out, but Strange stopped him because Olathebel would have been on his through line. And we'll let Strange tell the rest of the story here. Quote, Sevi came charging up. That bother you, he said? That bother you? I said, yes, that does bother me. And so Sevi stomped over to his chip and shipped it right into the back of the hole, then walked off the green, pumping his fist at me. And I almost had to applaud him. More power to him. God damn, I was so mad I wanted to kill him. End quote. Now that was Strange's version of the story. There are a few extra details in the version told by the Spaniards' caddies that day, which is that after Strange protested, Sevi, who had been speaking with Olathebel in Spanish, switched to English to say loud enough for the Americans to hear, don't worry, this is an easy chip, I'm going to hole it. And after he made it and told Olathebel to pick up his marker, again, speaking in English, he said, don't worry, Curtis isn't going to hole his putt anyway. And of course he didn't. The Spanish Armada went on to win that match 2-1. and one. They won another match the next day. They also lost a match that day. Hal Sutton and Larry Mize gave Sevi and Jose Maria Olathebel their only loss in the Paris sessions of the 1987 Ryder Cup. And while it remains one of the proudest moments of Sutton's career, when he told the story in the summer of 2021, I was there, Sevi was still the starring character. Quote, It was the first time they ever got beat. I hit it close on the first hole, Sevy made a 30-footer. I hit it close on the second hole, Sevy made a 30-footer. Anyway, I was five under through five holes. We were one up. So we got to 16. I was the only guy to hit the green. Sevy and Larry both missed it left. Olathebel missed it right. Olathebel chipped it all the way across the green. Sevy chili dipped it, which he never did. And I hit it about six feet behind the hole. And Sevy, after he chili dipped it, he was standing over the ball off the green. And I said, Larry, what do you think he's going to do? And Larry said, he'll make it which of course he did, end quote. And that's the match the Americans won. And this is classic Seve at this point in his career when he's on the upswing. He manages to gild his own reputation, even in failure. But the Spanish Armada won again that afternoon, helped establish an enormous lead going into Sunday, which they held on to, not by much, but they did. 
and they won for the first time on American soil and changed Ryder Cup history. And I love that story, that Friday story was strange. And I love it not just because of the drama, but because it shows a few different sides of Seve's personality. There is the combativeness. Maybe he felt Strange was trying to intimidate a Ryder Cup rookie in Olathobble. He wasn't having it. He wanted to assert himself immediately. There is also the mystique of it, the fact that he chipped the ball in the hole. The magic of Seve Ballesteros, as you'll find, is what he pulls off when things get difficult. And there's the element of him where he is, for lack of a better term, a pain in the ass, a nudge. You can just see him walking off the green, looking right at Strange, pumping his fist. There is a unique thing about Seve Ballesteros, which is that where most athletes, not just golfers, but athletes in general would want to minimize emotions like anger, so it takes away your focus, Ballesteros would almost seek it out and he would thrive. If you were both pissed off at each other, that's what he liked because he knew he could play better than you in that state. Today, we mostly get the mystique when we talk about Seve, and there was a lot of that, but if we're going to tell the story here, we have to tell the whole story, the complicated story, as best we can. And Seve Ballesteros was nothing if not complicated. There is one more story, far shorter and a little more mysterious, maybe even inscrutable, that I think tells so much about Seve, and it's a story that Tony Jacklin told in his book, My Ryder Cup Journey. And Jacklin says, quote, Seve and I shared a car at one point as we traveled to get our clubs fixed in 1979. I tried to explain that it's a much easier game from the fairway, and that he should try and work on slowing his swing down, especially at the all-important time when he was coming down the stretch at a tournament. He said, but you don't understand, Tony. That's a little cryptic, isn't it? I've thought about that quote a lot since I first read it and what it could mean. And where I've settled, and I may be wrong here, but I think what it means is that for Seve, there was beauty and maybe even some kind of inner personal truth in the art of scrambling, in the art of recovery. Yeah, maybe he could have tried to be a more clinical golfer, go from tee to fairway to green, but that wasn't a reflection of who he was or what he believed that life was about. The Seve Ballesteros of reality was born with a defect that made his right shoulder hang lower. He grew up to be a great champion, but also the kind of person who, for instance, slept with a 38 revolver under his pillow, who held grudges like nobody's business. He was a fighter from the time he was born in the small village of Pedrania to the day at age 54 in that same village when a brain tumor took his life. There was never a moment when he wasn't scrambling, when he wasn't recovering, when he wasn't looking for the outrageous miracle. That's how he lived, and that was always going to be how he played golf. The writer Robert Greene, who wrote a biography of Seve, referenced a quote from Norman Mailer about Muhammad Ali that I think describes this phenomenon perfectly. And the quote is... What is genius but balance on the edge of the impossible? He's got to chip it between those bunkers with the flag only six or seven yards on the green the other side. And the cheeky lad, he's run it through the middle and played an absolute gem of a stroke. I'm Shane Ryan. This is Local Knowledge. And I want to tip my cap to a few sources here. Already mentioned the oral history of the Ryder Cup, us against them. It won't surprise you to know Seve plays a pretty big part in the story of the Ryder Cup. But there's a lot of great Seve writing out there. One writer I want to single out is John Hopkins, who has written two different features that are both excellent on Seve. You can find those in Global Golf Posts. In particular, the one titled The Legend of Seve is very good. 
Uh, two most prominent books I could find were Sevi, a biography by Alistair Tate. And again, I think I already mentioned Sevi's Flawed Genius by Robert Greene. I used both of those. Sevi himself wrote an autobiography in 2007, but for reasons we'll get into, go into that one with both eyes open, as you should any time you hear Sevi Ballesteros on Sevi Ballesteros. And the last two things I'll mention are magazine features by Jaime Diaz at Golf Digest and Alan Shipnuck wrote a nice feature for Golf.com back in the day where they actually visited Spain and wrote about Sevi in his hometown. It was Robert Greene who wrote in the introduction to his book what I consider a kind of thesis statement about Sevi. And probably the first thing we need to know as we deconstruct the myth, because the myth is strong and it's not easy to deconstruct. But Greene goes some way to doing that. He wrote, quote, He was a complex character, charming and manipulative, gregarious and withdrawn, open and suspicious, generous and mean. That's probably a necessary facet of being a flawed genius. It is part of the price you pay, a kind of Faustian bargain for being a champion, end quote. Not sure I agree with him 100%. I don't think all champions are like that, but I certainly agree with him as it pertains to Seve. So let's talk about where it all began, 1957. Seve was born April 9th in the village of Pedrena, which is this small little fishing village in northern Spain. The nearest big city is Santander. Seve was a lifelong fan of racing Santander, in fact. He was the fifth and final child in his family, all of them sons, and they all lived in a house above a barn where they kept cows and chickens. His mother kept the house, his father farmed and fished. I liked how John Hopkins wrote about this setting. He wrote, quote, Chickens pecked and clucked in the ground outside. A donkey was tethered nearby. Rabbits scurried around. In such inauspicious circumstances, Severiano Ballesteros, the youngest of five sons, one of whom died age two from a wasp sting, was born on 9 April 1957. That death that Hopkins references there of his brother Manuel happened before Seve was born in very distressing circumstances. He was stung by a group of wasps. The nanny was there, but she had to protect the younger baby and, and managed to save his life. But Manuel, who was two, she couldn't protect them both, and he passed away a couple days later. And the next brother that was born took his name, Manuel, and became a professional golfer. To give you an idea of the willpower of the Ballesteros family, the father, whose name was Baldomero, was a nationalist during the Spanish Civil War, which meant he supported and was on the side of Franco, who would, of course, win that war, but he happened to be in a Republican region of the country, and he was recruited to fight against Franco. At that time, it sounds like the recruitment wasn't exactly voluntary. So how did he react to that mandate? Well, he simply shot himself in his own left hand, said, good luck making me fight now. Got 20 years in prison for that, but he escaped from the hospital before he served a day of that sentence, and he did the only thing he could at that point. He went off to join Franco and fought for him. So Sevi grows up here in Pedrena, and sometimes you hear that he grew up poor. I don't think that's strictly true. I think it was definitely a modest upbringing. He wasn't rich, but I don't get the sense this was a poverty situation. He did live simply, though. His parents gave him an allowance of five pesetas a week, spends his time doing farm chores, mucking out the cow stalls. He was apparently a talented middle-distance runner as a kid. It seems like he ran to and from school every day. And Pedrania is the kind of town where there was one phone in town at a cafe, one taxi, one television, one car. That car was owned by Ramon Soda, who was Sevi's uncle, a golfer himself. 
In fact, a very good golfer, good enough that he had finished sixth at the 1965 Masters. More on him in a little bit. And you talk about these sort of coincidences of history. This town, Pedrena, was a golf town. Golf was kind of in the ether, but that was unusual in Spain. This is not a big golfing country at the time, even less so than it is now. And considering what that was like, to be exposed to this game, you kind of have to be born in a very small list of places, of which Pedrena was one of the only ones. This is not the UK. It is not normal to be a golfer if you're from Spain. Alan Shipnuck chronicles the history. Essentially, the royal family of Spain vacationed in Santander. King Alfonso XIII took up golf, loved it, and he said, I want a course nearby when I'm on vacation. So they built a course called Real Pedrena. And, you know, the word Real in Spain, you probably know, means royal. You hear it with soccer clubs like Real Madrid. It's because they're granted that title by the king. So Real Pedrena, the golf course, the Real is because it is the king's course. So, in other words, if Seve's born 50 miles to the south to a different family, he probably never picks up a golf club in his whole life. There are a couple of sort of legends around Seve as a child. As far as I can tell, they're true legends. The first is that he had this congenital defect where his right shoulder hung lower than his left by a couple inches. So if you were looking at him, it would look like his right arm was longer to the naked eye. And the idea here is that this was actually the perfect body position for addressing a golf ball. So it was something that helped him. Almost like he was born to. And I just want to point out quickly the parallel here to John Rahm, who was born with a club foot that led to doctors having to break his ankle as a baby to straighten it out. And as a result, his right leg grew shorter, and this led to him taking a shorter backswing because he doesn't have the ankle stability to do anything more. And that's kind of a tangent, but I just think it's an almost literary parallel. Like if you were writing a novel about a great Spanish legendary golfer and his heir apparent, well, one little flourish you might write in is that they both have a similar kind of disability. Now, the Ballesteros family was a family of golfers. Manuel, Seve's older brother, Again, he was the most accomplished before Seve. He won a European tour event. He beat Nick Faldo at the Timex Open in 1983. He was the real deal. Seve grew up watching him and his other brothers, but all he originally had was a club head, no shaft. He would ram these wooden sticks in to make the shaft. He would soak it in water overnight so it got a little thicker. Maybe it would last him two days. He would use that to hit pebbles up and down the beach in the fields. First club he ever had, first real club was a three iron that Manuel gave him. Now at that point he was already caddying at the local club. But now he had this three iron and he'd go out onto his course. In the daytime at night he'd hit this three iron which is a very strange club obviously to start with for a kid. Not something anybody would recommend. And the legend here which again I I think it sounds true is that he had to learn to play every kind of shot from long to short with this three iron. And supposedly, this is the genesis, or one genesis, of his creativity. Because obviously, if you're going to hit a short pitch or a chip with a three iron, you better be pretty creative. That's not easy. He would skip school to play. He would leave his three iron in a drainage pipe, swap it out for his book bag. Became a golf junkie, no surprise, considering his family. Alan Shipnuck actually went to Pedrania to write a story about his hometown, and in that story, he quotes Seve's autobiography about him playing at night under the moon. It's a poetic quote worth repeating here, I think. Seve said, It was a very strange experience to walk around a golf course at night because all the reference points that help estimate distances vanished. 
I knew where the shot was heading from the way my hands felt the hit and from the sound the ball made when it hit the ground. By practicing at night, I learned to feel the grass under my feet, to measure distances intuitively, and adjust the power of the strokes I wanted to make. End quote. It's almost a ghostly visual there, young Sevi at night, almost kind of spiritual, which is a theme, again, that repeats itself with him, this concept of magic. And on the topic of what kind of kid he was, Robert Greene, who again wrote a biography, has the theory that this area of Spain, a region called Cantabria, it's on the north coast of Spain, not far from the French border, and it stretches from the Cantabrian mountains in the south down to the Bay of Biscay, where if you sail due north, you'll hit the west coast of France, veer a little left, and you'll hit Plymouth in England. The people in this area, at least at the time, were very close-knit and almost had a sort of xenophobia. They're insular, not particularly fond of outsiders. They're a little suspicious of them. And despite the fact that Pedrania might sound like this bucolic, lovely romantic setting, as Green points out, this is post-Franco Spain. The war is fresh in people's minds. Would not be like the Spain of today, not remotely. You've got soldiers, you've got these stern priests. Everybody is affected by this war that ended in 1939, but the suffering and the bloodshed and a nation torn against itself 18 years later when Sevilla is born, that very much lives on, and it can be a harsh place and somewhat intimidating as well. And the aspects of Sevi that come out later, the combativeness, the paranoia, the intense privacy when he's off the course, as, as outward and public as he seems on it, to some degree, this can be attributed, perhaps, to where he was brought up and what it was like at that point in history. Conflict is a very recent memory and a very real part of day-to-day existence for him. There's a story about him at age 12 where a textbook of his, a school textbook, got ripped. Somehow, it wasn't him who did it, But when he brought it to school, that didn't matter. His teacher, it was a woman, made him hold out his hand and she hit it with a whip. So he went home for lunch. He was hurt. He was angry. Nobody was home at his house and there happened to be a bottle of wine on the table. He started to drink. He got drunk. He went back to school and he went up to the teacher and he started hitting her. You can read stories online where it says, Sevi dropped out of school at age 12. Well... It appears dropping out doesn't quite describe it. For reasons you can imagine, he was not exactly welcome back. But it also seems like it wasn't that big a deal to his parents. Again, this is a different time. At this point, Sevi had already shown a major talent for golf, even by comparison to his brothers. Who remember, one of them's a pro. Sevi won a caddy tournament at Real Padrena when he was 11. By age 13, he beat his brother Manuel for the first time. And when he dropped out of school, it was basically all golf, all the time. And pretty soon, everybody knew how good he was. They gave him unlimited playing privileges at Real Padrena to whatever extent he was rebuffed before. Now he was welcomed with open arms. And from there, it's a green light. Every bit of time can be and was dedicated to golf. And people took notice. Spanish players who were playing in Europe were already telling anyone who would listen, we've got a kid back home who's going to be better than all of us. Just wait. And on March 22nd, 1974, Sevi was 16. He turned pro. And this was after basically having no amateur career. Aside from playing a few caddy tournaments in Pedrania, there was nothing. Nothing except his work ethic. And his work ethic was, as you might imagine, intense. Almost to the degree that he seemed like he regretted it later. He would say things like, you know, no one can understand how much I gave to my golf in those days. 
and how much I lost regarding other things in life. Probably a little hindsight there. I don't know if he actually would have done anything different, but it does tell you a lot about his dedication. It was also around this time that back injuries began to plague him. Happened young for him. He was boxing at age 14 with a friend when he got knocked to the ground, landed on his spine. He was in pain for weeks. Not many years later, just before his first professional victory at the Spanish Under-25 Championships at Real Pedreña, he practiced so much in cold conditions that he almost withdrew because the pain in his back was so bad. He did play, and he won, but the back injuries would never go away from then on, and they eventually led to very serious problems by the time the 1990s hit. Again, Seve was only 33 in the year 1990, but by that point, it was so bad that the peak of his career was by then effectively over. And people knew it. Nick Faldo made comments. It was obvious to his fellow pros that, you know, the end was coming. But even before his first win, his first professional tournament was at the Spanish National Championship in Barcelona. Again, this is March 1974. He's 16 years old, and he finished 20th in that event. And how does he react? Well, they found him afterward in the locker room sobbing, head on his knees. He thought he would win. He sincerely thought he was going to win his first tournament. Got a little bit worse from there. A series of miscuts followed. It was verging on financial disaster. But when he won the under-25s, that tournament at Real Padrena, he won around the equivalent of $700. He found a benefactor. And all of a sudden, he started to make real money all on his own. He also met a wealthy local man, a man named Emilio Botin, through his brother. And he would give lessons to his children. This wasn't his benefactor, but, you know, he was close with the family. And he met his future wife that day. The daughter of Emilio was named Carmen, just like his mother's name. That fall, he finished fifth at the Italian Open. So you see, he's starting to find more and more success on bigger and bigger stages. And there's a great story from a tournament in Spain, and it's told in Crean's book, where a player named Roddy Carr, who later became Seve's manager for a little while, but he was the player then, he described playing with Seve in the first round of that event. Quote, I was drawn with this kid from Spain. We got on the first hole and he hits a five iron to 20 feet and slams the club down on the ground. I thought it was a fairly decent shot. He misses the putt and he kicks the bag off the green. This went on the whole way around. I'm thinking, Jesus Christ, does he expect to hole every shot? And it was getting to me. I was getting annoyed. He was passionate. If he didn't hit a two iron to 10 feet, he was pissed off. If he didn't hole every putt, he was pissed off. And he had a temper in those days. End quote. It was so bad that day that Carr thought of reporting him. He didn't, but that was Seve in those days. Such a perfectionist that he would be furious if he fell short in any way. 1975, his second year as a pro, there's an interesting moment when he travels to America to the PGA Tour qualifying school. He does very, very well. In fact, he seems to be a shoe-in after five and a half of these six total rounds. But then he considers the reality of traveling away from his people, away from his home, basically living in a strange place with no friends. And it's not clear if he tanked on purpose or if he just gave up, but he shot a 40 on that final nine. He missed the cut and he seemed happy about it. And it's, you know, I just mentioned that because of the little alternative history implied by it. You think, hmm, what would have happened if Seve came to America that early? Still only 18 years old. His first big year was 76. And we're not going to do a chronology of every single tournament he played. It would take forever. But it is worth just taking a pause and noting how fast it happens for him 
and at what a young age. We can sometimes lose that perspective. You go over the way someone becomes great, and you say, this year he won this, this year he won that. But this is a kid from a Spanish village. Granted, he's got a good family pedigree, but he had no amateur career. Turned pro at 16, so young. For a little while, he couldn't make any cuts. And within two years, he's one of the best players in the world. And at the Open Championship that year, you know, the big one, the British Open, there's kind of a funny moment where his brother, Manuel Ballesteros, fails to qualify, but Seve does, and at the end of the first round, the name Ballesteros is on the leaderboard, tied for first place. And Manuel is there, he's helping Seve out, so everybody who sees Manuel congratulates him. But he has to tell them, no, it's my brother, and not many people know Seve by that point. He would get his first win at the Dutch Open a month later. But right now, everybody's basically saying, who is this kid? The fact that he's on the leaderboard seems like a fun first-day novelty. They go into the press conference. Manuel translates for Seve. Everybody has some laughs. Then he goes out on Friday and shoots 69 again. All of a sudden, he's leading by two shots over Johnny Miller. A round later, he still leads by two shots. At this point, he is very much on the verge of becoming the youngest Open champion of the 20th century. And at that point on that Saturday, he doesn't even quite realize the way his brother does, how big this is. And Green's book talks about how Manuel is a little bit embarrassed about it. Like, he doesn't even know what tournament he's about to win. But it starts to settle in. Something got to him, and he started feeling the pressure. In the final round, he made a double bogey. He made a triple bogey. He's paired with Johnny Miller, and he had to scrape and claw just to finish in a tie for second. Miller won that year, and it was Seve's driver that killed him on that final round. That was to become a theme, and Green, in his book, trotted out the old adage about Seve's playing style that it was like Brazilian soccer, where the philosophy is, you know, go ahead and score three goals if you like, because we're going to score four. That's how he'd been doing it, but uh, on that final day, which was a Saturday, by the way, they didn't start playing final rounds on Sunday until, I believe, 1980. But on that Saturday, you know, the philosophy didn't work. He made the double, he made the triple, He just it just wasn't happening for him. And if he didn't know the import of the tournament at first, he certainly knew it by the end of that day. He was crying in his brother's arms afterward. And as Shipnuck pointed out, everybody watching, nobody quite knew what to make of him yet. Dan Jenkins, the famous golf writer, he kind of insulted his swing in the thing he wrote, and he wrote that, quote, the world may not hear more from Severiano Ballesteros, end quote. Oops. Like we said, he won the Dutch Open a month later, finished that year at the top of the Order of Merit on the European Tour. At that point, he had to serve his time in the Spanish Air Force. I was part of, you know, living in Spain at the time. For him, it was largely ceremonial. You know, his talent kind of protected him a little bit. He gave golf lessons, but it did take time away. Nevertheless, he was back in 77. He won twice, won four times in 78, and then 79 comes one of the seminal Seve stories at the Open Championship at Royal Litham in St. Anne's. He's 22 now. Comes into the final round in second place, two strokes behind Hale Irwin. And that day, that final round, he hits a grand total of four fairways. He's all over the place. Now, to be fair, it was a miserable, windy, cold day, a classic, you know, brutal Open Championship weather. The story goes that Hale Irwin wore two sweaters that day for all the good it did him, which is not much. He shot 78, but Seve scrambled his head off. And again, this is going to be the quintessential Seve Ballesteros day, maybe of his whole career. 
He is driving it wayward left and right, but he keeps making birdies, keeps making pars. And his biggest screw up off the tee of all comes on the 16th hole, where he hits his tee shot into a temporary parking lot about as far right as you can go. But it's not out of bounds, which shocks Irwin. He even went to an official and said, how on earth is that in play? And they had to give him a drop. Some people said they had to move cars around so he could hit his ball. Irwin called it, quote, one of the great wayward drives I've ever seen. But was it? Was it wayward? Was it a mistake? The crazy part here, and a little bit more of that Seve mystique, is that he may have done it on purpose. Here's an excerpt from the Washington Post on that moment. Quote, Mr. Ballesteros led the British Open in the final round with a chance to shut the door on his closest pursuer, Nicholas. Um, brief interjection by me. As we said, Hillary shot 78, so it was Nicholas who was his next closest competitor. Back to the post. If he could make one last birdie down the stretch, Mr. Ballestero saw his opportunity on the 16th hole. He later said that he did not want to hit the ball straight down the fairway and risk a difficult second shot through raging crosswinds. Instead, Mr. Ballesteros improvised and aimed his drive toward a parking lot where his ball came to rest alongside a white Austin with a wide-open view of the green. Mr. Ballesteros birdied the hole and beat Nicholas by three shots to become at 22 the youngest British Open winner since the late 1800s. End quote. Now, is that true? The part about hitting it there on purpose? Or is it something Seve invented later to kind of burnish his legend? Knowing him... Knowing his inventiveness, his creative genius on the course, it's very believable that he did hit a ball into the parking lot on purpose on the 16th hole with a chance to win a major, something that would be crazy for any mortal. But it's also very believable that he hit a bad drive and made up a good story after the fact. And to be honest, I kind of like not knowing because not knowing gets at the mystery of Seve Ballesteros better than having the answer. As the Post said, Seve made birdie on that hole, end of the day with a 70 which was a better round than anyone else, at least in the top 10, won by three strokes, and Hale Irwin grumbled afterward, I can't understand how anyone can drive that badly and still win an open championship. How, indeed, there's only one person who can do that. Irwin went on to predict that he wouldn't win another major. A little Dan Jenkins-like note for posterity there. But it wasn't unexpected from Seve. We mentioned his uncle Ramon Soda had played in the Masters at a top 10 was an accomplished pro himself. And I want to visit that for a second because you might expect that Seve would kind of cite Ramon Soda as his role model, as the inspiration for everything he was doing, but he never did. And the reason why, or at least the reason that some people suspect, has to do with how he saw himself as a champion. And his uncle wasn't a champion, not on the biggest level. Here's what Manuel Pinero, a great Spanish player himself, a near contemporary of Ballesteros in the Ryder Cup, star had to say about that quote Seve wouldn't admit he learned a lot from Ramon but I think Ramon was the first master in that part of the world Ramon always talked about Arnold Palmer and Nicholas and that the Americans were unbeatable it was impossible for him to beat them even though he was a fantastic player Seve wanted to show his uncle and his people that he could beat the Americans he wanted to show that he could do what some people thought was impossible end quote and he had done that for starters at the 79 Open. The next year, 1980, in his fourth Masters ever, he won that. Two years in a tail, and Seve Ballesteros, the winner of the 44th Masters. It was a tour de force, at least for 63 holes. 
got to the back nine on Sunday, holding a 10-shot lead. If anything, it looked like he was on the verge of setting the new master scoring record. What did he do? He proceeded to give up eight of those 10 shots. Went from 1,600 to 1,200 in four holes as the field kind of charged up, hit the water twice, and all because he was taking these crazy risks, going right at flags, including on number 12, ended in the water there. But with the lead down to two, he regrouped, and he ended up coasting to victory. As strange as it sounds, until that point, no European golfer had ever won the Masters. Gary Player was, in fact, the only non-American to do it. Unlike the U.S. Open, the Open Championship, which had started in an era of British dominance, the Masters started after World War I in the 30s, when things had begun to change significantly, when America had already become the preeminent force in the sport, and for 36 years, no European had climbed that mountain, had won a green jacket, until Seve. And it's at this point that even in America, his reputation for a certain kind of magic begins to spread. It starts what Alan Shipnuck calls the cult of Seve. His creativity, his short game, all that stuff goes into it. It can be a little hard to explain what that means or to understand it, especially for those of us who didn't grow up watching him play. For those who did, though, there is an aura around the sky, and there are a million great stories about him. You can't tell them all, but I think it's worth our time to tell one, at least, just to give a sense of the flavor of this guy, the real belief people had that there was something almost supernatural about his talent. This story comes from one of the John Hopkins features I mentioned earlier. It's told by a caddy named Billy Foster, who you may remember finally got his first major win with Matt Fitzpatrick at last year's U.S. Open. He was on Seve's bag for a while, and there was a tournament in Switzerland when Seve seemed to pull off a miracle on the 18th hole when he was stuck behind a wall. Here's what Foster says, quote, he was perhaps 10 feet from the wall, and the wall was 10 feet high. There were fir trees above the wall, and he saw a chink of light in the trees about four feet above the wall. He had half a backswing. Four times I asked Seve to chip it out, wedge it onto the green, and make par that way. I envisaged his ball hitting the wall, rebounding into his face, and killing him, and I'd have no boss and no percentage money. I pleaded with him. My last words to him were, I know you're Seve Ballesteros, but you're not fucking Paul Daniels. Quick side note, Paul Daniels was a British magician. Back to Foster. He continues, chip it out, will you please? He refused, and I saw the dust come up from where his club hit the ground, and I didn't hear the ball hitting the wall. It went over the wall, through that gap in the trees, over four 70-foot-high pine trees, about 30 yards short of the green, and landed one yard off the putting surface. Then guess what happened? He only went and chipped in for a birdie, didn't he? I went down on my hands and knees to bow to him. I thought he was God. End quote. And these stories of his magic, of his surreal, inexplicable ability abound. I mean, look no further than what we talked about before. There are more than a few people who think Seve Ballesteros played a significant part in Europe winning the 2012 Ryder Cup about 16 months after he died. Speaking of the Ryder Cup, Seve played in his first one in 1979. And for a guy who put together an unbelievable career in that event, it's easy to forget that he started this one with a 1-4-0 record. Larry Nelson beat him four times. He's got feuds going on. He's got a fight with the European Tour happening in the meantime over appearance fees. They seem to have banned appearance fees for people like him, for Europeans, but still gave them to Americans occasionally. Seve 
was not pleased. It seems like probably he had a great point there. It's also worth knowing he would later fight with Dean Beeman over PGA Tour requirements. This guy was never really far from a fight in his career, especially with governing bodies or rules officials, people like that. So, didn't play in the 81 Ryder Cup. Then Jacklin takes over in 83, and he knows he needs Seve. He asks the people in charge about him. They say, well, you're the captain. He's your problem now. Which brings us to the Prince of Wales Hotel in Southport, England, summer of 1983. The Open Championship would be played near Southport at Royal Birkdale. But Jacqueline's immediate priority was to meet with Ballesteros. They worked it out within a week of him accepting the job. And when they met for breakfast at that hotel, Seve's eggs apparently grew cold as he vented every single one of his Ryder Cup grievances, European Tour grievances, to Jacqueline. And Jacqueline says, well, I agree with every bloody thing you said. They're all a pain in the ass, but I'm in charge. We do what we want, and I can't do it without you. I've accepted the job, but without you, we're not going to be competitive. Jacqueline also brought up how becoming a Ryder Cup star would improve his image in the UK, which was of no small importance to Ballesteros at that time. And at the end of all this convincing, Seve almost seemed to deflate. Okay, he said, I help you. And there's a postscript in a Reuters article that I particularly like right after Seve agrees where Jacqueline tells the reporter, quote, and my God, once he committed, he was unbelievable. To say the least, in his career, Seve put up a Ryder Cup record of 20, 12, and 5. And remember, that's after starting 1-4 and four in 79. And if Jacqueline is the brains behind the transformation of Team Europe, Seve is the soldier, the heartbeat. There are two Ryder Cup stories I want to tell from 83. The Again, remember, that's the one in America that they almost win. The first is from his singles match with Fuzzy Zeller. And this all happens before television coverage starts that day. ABC had a two-hour window. I mean, you know, college football was the priority and whatever else they had. So none of this is on TV. You can't even go and watch it today, unfortunately. Seve establishes a three-up lead with seven to play on Zeller. Seems like he's going to coast to the win. But somehow Zeller wins four straight holes. Suddenly, Seve has to drain a 20-foot birdie put on 16 just to get back to all square. And he does it, but they're still tied when they come to the long 18th, the par 5, where Seve hooks his drive into thick rough. It's so bad that he can only push his second shot about 20 yards into a fairway bunker, and he's still 250 yards away from the hole. And with the lip of the bunker right in front of him, he does something completely insane, which is that he takes out his three-wood. He proceeds to astound everyone by picking the ball clean, and somehow, some way, hitting it all the way, 250 yards, to the green. Some people think it's the greatest shot in Ryder Cup history, considering the context. Bernard Langer says it's the greatest shot he ever experienced. Nicholas echoed him almost exactly. He said it was the greatest shot I ever saw. And it has grown in myth because it was not on TV. They were airing coverage that day, but like I said, they didn't cover the first match of the day, so now we can only imagine what that shot was like. But... We're lucky to have a great description from John Hopkins, the British writer who was there and who saw the shot live. One thing that's funny about that is that apparently he was one of the few British reporters who stayed that day. Others went to Disney World early in the day, and they, a lot of them weren't there for this. But here's what Hopkins wrote. I was lucky enough to be 20 yards behind Ballesteros when he hit that three-wood from a bunker on the 18th hole at Palm Beach Gardens in his singles match against Fuzzy Zeller. And as soon as I realized how daring a shot he was attempting, shivers ran up and down my spine. 
The ball came up out of the bunker, barely disturbing a grain of sand, bent 30 yards in the air, and ended by the side of the green. That was unquestionably the most thrilling shot I've ever seen, and I never expect to see another like it. End quote. Ballesteros have that match, but the Europeans went on to lose a very close one, as we said, and they were devastated in the team room. You can imagine that setting, all those players there, you can imagine a dark sense of inevitability settles over them at that moment and hovers over them, and then something amazing happens. And There are a lot of people who tell this story. Pretty much anyone who is there on Team Europe has their own version. My two favorites come from Faldo and Torrance. Here's what Nick Faldo said. Quote, we were all in the team room feeling down and dejected. Half of us felt we should have won and half were not sure. At that point, in marches Seve. He had his fists clenched and his teeth were bare, just like he is when he's excited. And he kept marching around the room saying to everyone, this is a great victory, a great victory. Then he said, we must celebrate. And he turned the whole mood of the team around. That was the spark, Seve in 83. By 1985, we knew we could do it. And here's how Sam Torrance put it, quote, The Sunday night at Palm Beach, he was extraordinary. He made us all, even Langer, shout out, We will beat them. He had tears streaming down his face. It was ridiculous the amount of emotion that was shown. He said, Don't cry when we lose. Cry when we win. We are going to beat them. End quote. One more story from 1985 shows a different side of Seve, the, the side of Seve that's in the midst of the battle. This is the year Europe finally won at the Belfry. On Saturday morning, Craig Stadler for the Americans missed a short putt on 18. It gave Europe new life. Instead of an American lead, it was six all heading into the afternoon session there. And here's how Alistair Tate described the scene from the team room in his biography of Seve. You know, this is why the Europeans were watching it inside the locker room on TV. And keep in mind that Seve had just lost that morning. Here's Tate, quote, There was Bedlam in the European team room. Seve leapt out of his chair when the ball missed the hole. The chair went tumbling, and Seve came down with a bang and landed on his back. His teammates were hammering on the wall to the American team dressing room. The dream was alive. The Europeans had halted the American juggernaut. They would go into singles level. It was game on. End quote. Tony Jacklin was on the course, but he saw Seve later, and he said... From a personal level, I never wanted to beat anybody by him screwing up. I wanted to beat people, but I wanted to have my best game, and I wanted to kick their ass. And I remember seeing Stadler miss the putt, and my immediate reaction was shock. But Seve said, this is it. He picked up on it immediately. End quote. Amazing, isn't it, to see again that keen sense he had of knowing when he had an opponent on the run? didn't matter to him that he had just lost, nor did any feelings of sympathy for Stadler get in the way. Jacqueline, you know, had had his own heartbreak in the Open Championship, so he felt for Stadler, but Seve was like a shark, and now he smelled blood. And there are some Europeans who still believe that moment, that Stadler putt, turned the entire history of the modern Ryder Cup around. Seve plays in the Ryder Cup until 95. His career ends there with a singles match against Tom Lehman, where he's hurting, he is severely outmatched, but it turns into this classic Seve performance where he's holding out from everywhere, scrambling like crazy. Lehman doesn't know what to do. Eventually, Lehman does win, but Seve goes out the way he came in. By the time his career is over, he would win five majors. His best moment, by his own telling, came at the Open Championship at St. Andrews, 
when he holds a putt of about 20 feet on the 18th hole to beat Tom Watson. The crowd went nuts. Yes. And listen to this roar. So I recommend looking this one up on YouTube. Seve had this kind of iconic reaction. He pumped his fist. It produced this photo that you may have seen. And Seve later had that photo tattooed on his arm. And he had a you know, like a brass sort of depiction of it made. He put it on his door in his house. Conversely, the most painful loss came two years later in 1986 at the Masters. That's one he probably should have won, but he hit a terrible second shot on 15 into the water. It seems like he chose the wrong club. That opened the door for Jack Nicklaus to mount his famous comeback and win that tournament. And that's the one consistent thing with Seve. With all the brilliance, you're going to have these moments where you just scratch your head and think, what on earth was he doing? That is the flip side of living on the edge of genius. That master's loss was particularly painful. He remembered it right up until he was on the verge of death as the worst moment of his career. And it wasn't just losing the masters, because he had won some before. It was that he wanted to win it for his father, who had passed away a month earlier from lung cancer. And he saw that tournament Seve did as a kind of tribute to him. And he never forgot being unable to get the job done. And it's interesting that we think of Seve so much in the context of the Ryder Cup, almost to the detriment of his truly impressive legacy just as an individual golfer. If Tony Jacklin was the guy who sort of planted the first flag in America in the new era, the first guy to come over and make a huge impact on the PGA Tour, Seve was the evolution of that, the guy standing on Jacklin's shoulders and doing even better. But there was a bitterness to Seve too. In his obituary in the Washington Post, there's this quote from Peter Kessler. Here's how Kessler describes it, quote, He never felt like he got the love he deserved. He played with a chip on his shoulder. He just wanted to be one of the guys with the Americans, but they all thought he was coming in and taking money right out of their pockets, end quote. And you know, his Spanish heritage played a part in this. I'm not, you know, saying he's Jackie Robinson, not even close. There are plenty of examples of American crowds loving him for his style and for the excitement he brought to the game. Far more examples of that than anything like, you know, racism or, you know, ethnocentrism or whatever. So let's not manufacture a narrative that wasn't there. However, I will say that as late as 2007, an RNA rules official named Graham Brown came under fire for making a series of racist jokes about Asians and African-Americans during a dinner speech. But it's funny to note that the first line in the AP story about it reads like this, quote, a royal and ancient rules official started his dinner speech with a fantastic impersonation of Seve Ballesteros, which segued to a series of racial and ethnic jokes, end quote. So clearly, Brown felt comfortable imitating Seve's Spanish accent, and the AP thought it was fine too. According to them, the racist stuff came later. There's another story too that Sam Torrance tells about a press conference at the 83 Ryder Cup where an American journalist kept calling him Steve instead of Seve. And he persisted even after he'd been corrected. Apparently that wasn't uncommon in American galleries either. And then there's a more overt story where an announcer at a tournament, not a fan, but one of the actual, you know, employed player announcers, steps out as Seve approaches and says, let's give the little bleep a big hand. And the little bleep is a, you know, epithet that is used often for Spanish people. Use your imagination. So what do you call that? Is it racism, xenophobia, whatever you want to call it, it is disrespectful. And again, I'm not here to dwell on this, but the point is that Seve is an outsider. He's treated as such. And even with the love of the fans, when he's in America, he often feels homesick. 
And all of this is compounded, by the way, in 1980 at the U.S. Open. He missed his tee time and he got disqualified. And again, later on in the 80s, when he starts a feud with the PGA Tour, because they're asking him to play 15 tournaments to retain his membership. And he thinks that's way too much. Dean Beeman and the tour actually stripped him of his membership for playing too few. And it became this long, intense fight that was never really resolved. For what it's worth, the requirements are less strict today. But Seve never lacked for enemies. Bernard Gallagher once said, quote, Seve needed to feel that the world was against him. He wanted to lead, to beat people. And John Hopkins had the line I love the most. He wrote, quote, You never needed to tell by Asteros there were dragons around the corner. He knew. And Seve made enemies with men like Curtis Strange and Paul Azinger and people on the PGA Tour, the European Tour. Here was the man who, as he aged, became increasingly bitter toward people he thought were not respecting him or who had wronged him in some way. In Pedrania, he actually got in a physical fight with a European tour official. That was in 2004. At that point, he's, you know, an older man. And his career is, is taking interesting paths, too. He had changed swings frequently in the latter part of his career. He had changed coaches a lot. And while some people argued that this was to his detriment, what Seve would say later is, it didn't matter what I did. My back was so bad, I had nothing left. Same year, he got in a fight with a tour official. He got divorced from his wife, Carmen. Green, in his book, writes, He was not the first famous man to fall into discredit due to a keen interest in women who were not his wife, and he won't be the last. Make of that what you will. And he wrote his own book in 2007, this autobiography. Uh, and it was full of grudges. There's, there's a certain Michael Jordan element here where... It seems like, you know, during his career, he was fueled by this idea that the world was against him. He would use it to motivate him the way Jordan did. But if you remember Michael Jordan's Hall of Fame retirement speech, he's still kind of taking shots at everybody. It's like he hasn't let this stuff go. And that's very much what this Seve autobiography was like. Jaime Diaz uh, in Golf Digest wrote about it later and basically saying it's a collection of grudges. Diaz writes... Ballesteros took shots at just about every institution of authority in his life, including Royal Pedrania, the Royal Spanish Golf Federation, and the European and PGA Tours, all for various slights. He also defended himself against accusations of gamesmanship and called rumors that infidelity broke up his marriage vicious, writing, Neither Carmen nor myself had any affairs while our marriage lasted. End quote. As he gets older, he gets more into burnishing his own legend at one point later in his career. Stories circulated that when he changed his swing, he took photos and videos of his old swing and burned them in the American desert. None of that was true. It seems to have come from him. Even in 97, when he was Ryder Cup captain at Valderrama, which the Europeans won, the almost but not quite unspoken sense of him as a captain was that he was neurotic. He was kind of a meddler, would tell players what shots to hit, what clubs to use, that kind of thing. All the stuff you really shouldn't do as a captain. His personality was almost too big for the event, even though his team won. Remember, this was a dire time for the American Ryder Cup team. Nevertheless, the reputation of Seve as a captain is not a great one compared to some of his European contemporaries. So you see how these impulses, these behaviors that are always kind of there with Seve grow more exaggerated with time. And it's important to remember, too, this whole time his back is hurting plays one senior tour event in 2007 in America says that's enough for me that's it I'm retiring it had already been about 12 years at that point since he won a European tour event 
And he kind of disappears from public life there. And we hear from him again in late October 2008. In an airport in Madrid, Spain, he faints. Doctors discover his brain tumor. It's the size of two golf balls about. He undergoes emergency surgery, rehab, more surgery, chemotherapy. And he survives three more years until he passes away on March 7th, 2011, age 54. And with time, those complications, the parts of his personality that wouldn't go into an obituary now, that are not mentioned really when we're talking about Sevi the saint-like figure, they fade away and what's left is the legend. And the legend, as you know, is huge. And it deserves to be huge. What this man did for European golf is beyond compare. You see in people like Olathabal, who was old enough to have played with him, and in people like Rom, who was not, how much he mattered. You know, Rom's parents went to the Valderrama Ryder Cup, and make no mistake, the fact that the Ryder Cup was in Spain had everything to do with Seve. Rom's parents fell in love with the game there and passed that love on to their son. So if it hadn't been for Seve, there's, this is not hyperbole, there is no John Rom, not in the sense that we know him today. That's just one small example. It is impossible to calculate Seve's influence on the grand scale, but the fact that we have another Spanish Masters champion as of a week ago there is a small but quite telling part of it. We're more than 10 years past his death. Coming to the end here, I feel like we've just scratched the surface, but really all you need to know is that we're still talking about him. You couldn't go an hour without hearing his name on the Masters broadcast. He is historical. And Green, in his biography of Seve, leads the whole thing with a quote by Oscar Wilde, of all people. And if you're looking at a sort of life summary quote, for Seve, a, you know, a gravestone quote, something that you'd, you'd make as epitaph, something that sums up the man's existence. I'm not sure you could do better than this. The quote is, Do you want to know the great drama of my life? It's that I have put my genius into my life. All I've put into my works is my talent. Jaime Diaz visited Seve in Pedrania in 2010. In April, almost exactly a year before the end, and he found a man who was physically very diminished. The brain surgeries had left him without feeling in parts of his left side. He wasn't so steady on his feet. He had lost most of the vision in his left eye. And he wasn't as expressive when he spoke. But at the same time, he was very emotional. Several times during the interview, he broke down sobbing. He was all alone at that point in that big house. His kids lived with his wife, still undergoing treatment. Three of his brothers lived nearby, and they were helping him out. And Jaime Diaz's whole piece is geared on the fact that Seve was going to play a four-hole tournament at St. Andrews that summer before the Open. And it was all about how special that was going to be. Well, on doctor's recommendations, he didn't go to that tournament, which he apparently deeply regretted afterward. But Diaz's impression seeing Seve there was that he legitimately felt at peace. Seve had more gratitude than Diaz had ever seen before, wasn't afraid to die. And he didn't feel ashamed of crying, of showing that kind of strong emotion to this man who was, you know, not a complete stranger, but a relative stranger. And that's remarkable after a lifetime of being pretty cryptic in public, of carefully guarding himself everywhere except the golf course. And at one point he says something to Diaz that has stuck in my mind. He said to him, it's good to let go because I have so much emotions because it is so much inside for a long time, it's good to let it out. I'm a very sensitive person. A lot of people think I'm very hard, you know? But you see the sensitive part now. Very sensitive, 
very human. Local Knowledge is produced by Greg Gottfried with editorial guidance from Sam Weinman. Our music for today's episode is called Alchemy by Al Marconi. And if you liked what you heard, please subscribe to Local Knowledge wherever you get your podcasts. And check out Golf Digest's weekly podcast, Loop. We also have a new podcast on golf instruction with Luke Crudenine. That's called Golf IQ. You can sign up for that as well. Thank you very much for listening.